This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Welcome to Women in a Day. Today we have joining us Jackie St. Joan. And Portia, tell us a little bit about Jackie. Jackie St. Joan is a retired Colorado county judge, a lawyer, and law professor whose legal work has been devoted to ending domestic abuse. She's also a writer whose projects often feature intersections of law, literature, and the voices of contemporary women. My Sisters Made of Light, her first novel, is set inside Pakistan's human rights movement. She's a poetry editor of the Colorado Independent, and she leads the legal team for the grassroots community organization Rename Stapleton for All. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. That bio just kind of skimmed the surface because there's so much more about you that I'm really excited to talk about. But let's start with your day. Since this is Women in a Day podcast, what does a typical day for you look like? Uh, It starts with my cats waking me up. I've always (laughs) been a cat person, so I um, I have two right now. Every day is a little bit different because I don't have the structure of a job anymore. But I do have the structure of working out. So I dance twice a week in the morning, and I also do yoga and, you know, other strengthening exercises a couple of times a week. What kind of dance? Um, I'm in part of a program called NIA, which is a, a workout that incorporates uh, martial arts, jazz, and the healing arts, like um, Tai Chi and, and Feldenkrais. So we do it to music. It's choreographed. And it's at your local rec center, so look around for it. It's really fun. How do you spell oh, that? Oh, NIA. Yeah. NIA. NIA. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go to NIA now, NIAnow.com, and you'll see all about it. How long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for five or six years. I have a white belt. Oh, wow. you get I've a belt? Never, yeah, you get belts if you want to. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so then what else do you do during a typical day? Some days I do, and sometimes I don't meditate. That is a, a part of my day that I that I, that I try to um, focus on at some point, usually in the morning. Then my day gets divided. I have uh, two adult children who each have two children. So I have grandparent responsibilities on some days and might be picking kids up after school or having a sleepover or just stopping by because uh, fortunately my daughter lives in the neighborhood so I can drop by pretty much whenever I want to. Uh, so that's, that's usually lovely. part of my day. The community work that I'm doing with Rename Stapleton for All right now is probably taking up, I would say, three or four hours a day wow. uh, during the week. Yeah, I would say something like uh, probably 20, almost 20 hours a week. And so that really involves doing some reading, legal analysis, a lot of emails, meetings, planning, um, evaluating, communicating, educating. And I can talk more about that if you want, but that's yeah. that's kind of my quote-unquote job right now. Okay. In the past, I've used that kind of time to write, and that's how I've been productive enough to write, you know, a couple of novels and and and, and a book, uh, poems, and uh, and to uh, also be involved in the literary community in Denver. I've been doing less of that over the last year because of my commitment to this other project, but I hope to get back to it soon. So that's kind of how my day goes. Evenings, half the time I'm probably just um, just alone reading or watching TV. Probably half the time I'm with my family or friends, depending. I you know, have different friends that I enjoy doing different kinds of things with. Tell us about Rename Stapleton for All. Okay, this is a project that is actually a nonprofit 
tax-exempt corporation that was started, actually it came out of a Black Lives Matter 5280 awareness program that they did in 2015 following Ferguson and wanting to bring attention to the racism that exists in our community. And what they wanted to do is educate the people, especially of Stapleton, that that Stapleton is, is named after the Stapleton Airport, which was named after Mayor Benjamin Stapleton, who was the mayor of Denver in beginning in the 1920s through the 1940s, give or take a couple of terms when others were elected, who was not only a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but who also was supported by the Klan, financed by the Klan, and uh, promised the Klan that he would do their bidding. And then when he became the mayor, he did, at least for a while. No idea. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that history. I happen to have known it. So I was aware when the community was being developed that they were using that name. And I lived in one of the adjacent neighborhoods at that time, okay. just south of there. Last year, when after the the events of Charlotte in Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. I was like, no, I grew up in Virginia. And I was like, no, 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 we're not going back. I, I didn't know what I could do. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a little thing, really, to change yeah. a name of a community. How does that really dismantle white supremacy? But it was a little something that I knew about, that I cared about. And so I did some investigation and found other people in Northeast Denver who cared about that. And we started this organization, renamed Stapleton for All. And we've been working over the last year with others in the community to some success of trying to slowly educate people and slowly approach organizations that have been using that name. We've had meetings with with, um, city officials and uh, we're not only looking to change the name of uh, the Stapleton community, but really any public place that honors a Klansman, we think, needs to be changed. So there's a Stapleton Drive, for example, which is a frontage road between Colorado Boulevard and Quebec okay. that's named Stapleton Drive. There is a Stapleton Park in Globeville. The city dropped that name when we brought it to their attention, and they've discovered that it never had been officially named by city council or by the parks department, so they took down the sign. There was a Stapleton Foundation that dropped the name. The Stapleton Development Corporation now calls itself SDC. The Forest City, the developer at Stapleton, actually took down their big Stapleton sign from the 29th Avenue Town Center about a year ago. So there have been these little incremental Incremental, changes that have happened. There was a listening session that was held last December where people came to a place at Stapleton to speak their mind on the subject, pro, con, in between, whatever they wanted to say. They, They had a place to say it, and people came and listened. And that was very interesting. And there's a report that was issued by the Equity Project, uh, what came out of that. And that's on our website, which is renameforall.com. The local public school over there, one of them is called DSST Stapleton. And they have a middle school. And the social science teacher there had their whole eighth grade study the history of Benjamin Stapleton in the Stapleton era. And then they took a vote, and over 60% voted to change the name of their school. Now, the administration hasn't done that. (laughs) Well, there was a similar vote. It was interesting. There was a similar vote in May at the uh, Stapleton United Neighbors is the name of the uh, community association at Stapleton. And there was a vote to change the name to Central Park United Neighbors. And uh, 58% of the vote was to change the name. But the bylaws required 66% 
kind of a supermajority. Okay. So uh, the name was not changed, but we felt it was a definitive majority, and we'll be back next year. What's so wrong for the forty-two percent of that community. How could you not vote? So yeah, for those who don't know Denver and aren't familiar with the Stapleton neighborhood, can you talk to us a little bit about the demographic of... I can tell you a little bit. And most of this is based on census data. Or generally what I can say is it's a predominantly white neighborhood. Right. It's a fairly affluent neighborhood. Mm -hmm. More affluent than than any other neighborhood probably. It's the largest neighborhood in Denver. It includes about 6,000 residences and about 20,000-25,000 people Mm -hmm. when you count all the kids. But it tends to lean a little bit left? I wouldn't. I don't really know that that's the case. I think it it tends to lean newcomers. Mm-hmm. People, people with the young families, young families mm-hmm. people with dual careers, raising kids mm-hmm. is kind of the general pattern that I've observed. I believe the census was that 83%, I think it was 83% of the people in that statistical, that statistical neighborhood are white. Mm-hmm. Which is what I think makes it interesting, and I think it's fascinating that at the middle, you said it was the middle school level, yes, where the students voted to change the name. It would be interesting if this kind of reached a tipping point because of the involvement of the younger population, meaning the kids of the neighborhood. Absolutely. One of our leaders is a is a high school student, and yeah. she's she's very articulate on the on the subject. And, and actually, just last night, someone was saying at a meeting that really this is for the kids. Mm-hmm. This is for the kids. When you think about what the meaning of a neighborhood means to you, the na- think of the neighborhood you grew up in. Right. You know, you have a certain warmth of feeling about that, yeah. usually. It holds a special place in your heart. But how would you feel if you found out, especially say you're a, a child of color, you it's found out exactly. that your neighborhood was named after a Ku Klux Klansman and that the people around you did nothing to change that. Yeah. And that that was on every building, every shopping center, every every part, you know, it's, it's right. you can't deny that that's celebrating it in whether a way when it's publicized to that extent. Yes, whether you like it or not. And the history of that Stapleton KKK era, which is really the 1920s and the middle of the 20s, Stapleton was not the only Klansman. We had a clan governor. Our two senators were Klansmen. The Klan had a membership of about 35,000 statewide and about half of those, or 17,000, in Denver. So to get elected here, there was a, because they had a very effective grassroots network, and it was a social network as well, it was largely targeted at Jews and at um, immigrants. The black community was also a target, but it, the, the Catholics were a big target. There were bills in the legislature to not allow Catholics to teach at CU, for example. There were parades, there were crosses burned on Table Mountain that could be seen all the way to Denver. Yeah. There were crosses burned on Ruby Hill. Um, there was harassment of the Jews on West Colfax, which was where the Orthodox community primarily was located at that time. And part of this era was, this was happening in other places in the country too, it was that era of defining who's an American. There had been so much immigration coming in. We, okay. This sounds like a familiar story, doesn't yeah. it? I was going to say, yes. Yeah. Here yeah. we go. So who is an American and who isn't? The, I mean, the, that, that was what they call the second Klan era. The first Klan era is the one we know immediately following the Civil War that arose in the South, yes. starting in Tennessee. And that, of course, carries a particular ignominy when it comes to um, African Americans. So the Klan has layers of meaning for different people. 
it reminds people of other places where they weren't welcomed, where they were threatened. And anyway, for all those reasons, we think the name should be should be dropped to something else. I mean, yes, when you know the history of it, then yes, absolutely. And I'm surprised more people don't know. I didn't know this. I didn't know this either. I heard no. about Jackie's project. So how can we get the word out to more people in Denver? I just did the website before, but tell us again how people can reach out. Okay, it's renameforall.com, and there's a project we have within our organization, which is called Denver Faces. So if you go to the website and you, and you click on Denver Faces, it will take you to some of the historical data. Denver Faces is a special project dedicated to the memory of our founder, Dr. Gregory Diggs, who died suddenly last February. In fact, Friday will be the six-month anniversary of his passing. This project is dedicated to spreading the word about this history through existing institutions. So we have representatives on our advisory board from the library, from the Curious Theater, from the Romero Theater Troupe, uh, from public schools. There's a teacher, for example, who's writing history modules for um, high school curriculum that will include this history of the Klan so the kids who go to high school will learn it, hopefully. It's not official, and it'll just start at South High probably pretty soon because today's the first day of school. So she intends to to teach that. And we intend to try to have that incorporated in the high school curriculum, or at least available throughout the city to teachers who who want to teach it. Uh, Curious Theater is, is intending to commission a play that will be set in that era. There's a program October 6th at the Cherry Creek Library uh, where the state historian Patty Limerick will be talking about a Rocky Mountain PBS program, which by the way is available online to anyone who wants to. Just Google KKK era Denver and you'll find it. So they're going to show that film and, and discuss it. And I know that Park Hill Library is also planning a program. And so it's little by little, you know, we're looking for people who care enough and who already are in existing institutions where they can develop this material in the way that they know how. Yeah. Do you have the support of Denver City Council? We have not approached City Council as a group. We have mm-hmm. met with some individual council members. The two councilwomen at large, for example, are Robin quite supportive. Robin Kanish. She's yeah. one of my best friends. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But. Yeah, and Debbie Ortega, too. Mm-hmm. Both have expressed support. And we believe, we, it, we're pretty sure there's some other supporters, too. too oh, but sure. right now, we're not, we don't have an action to put before City Council, so we don't want to approach them until we have something to ask them to do. Do you feel like in the time that we're living in now that you at least have other causes that are walking alongside you in other places that are going through the same things, renaming, shedding light on history that you can reach out to? Yeah, and there have been historians who have come in to do some teaching who um, who have documented a lot of that history and the movements that are going on, particularly in the South right now, to... Yeah to address the existence of slave platforms, you know, places where slaves were sold. Right. Whether, you know, you want to keep those in your community or not. And, of course, Confederate statues and what they mean. Every place has its own story. Right. And, and so does Stapleton. Because many people have fond memories of Stapleton Airport. Right. I did. Yeah. You oh, know, yeah. we do. Because it's a place where you live the whole... You know, it's a place where your children are growing up. As I was saying earlier, it's got a different meaning than, say, a statue in the park that you can pass or not pass by. You that's can't avoid it point. where you live. Yes, mm-hmm. that's a very good point. you live in the place. Mm-hmm. 
let's move on to kind of your history because it's fascinating. You've you've done so many different things, and I feel like you've lived many lives. Maybe you are a cat. <laughs> I am a cat. <laughs> so you grew up in Virginia, and you met your husband in a very interesting time in our history, speaking of history and mm-hmm. racial history. Mm-hmm. Tell us that special story. Okay. So I was a student at Georgetown University. Oh, I went to Georgetown, too. You did? For a master's degree. In what? Public policy. Okay. Cool. In the School of Foreign Service? No. No. Okay, I was in what was called, I think it still is, a School of Foreign Service. Mm -hmm. For your undergrad or? Undergrad. Okay. Which, by the way, at the time had a quota on women. Oh, wow. You couldn't have more than 25% of the class be women. Couldn't have more than. Oh, Could not have uh, more than. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. All right, then. <laughs> <laughs> this was I not uncommon. I know. Like that's what it, yes, that's an, like affirmative action. No. no. I mean, that was the era I was, I was in, so people don't remember that either. In fact, I wanted to go to William & Mary. That's where I wanted. It was a state school in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And they had a quota on Catholics. Wow. And I was raised a Catholic, so you know those things all existed so before the Civil Rights Act. So I didn't get Catholic in. Quota? Well, they never said that was why, but I got into Sarah Lawrence so and I got into Georgetown. Nice. So yeah. I kind of thought that well, was probably why. Anyway. It was. It, those things <laughs> happened. So anyway, I was involved in um, 1966 in the um, anti-war movement, like so many people of my generation, and I was a member of what we call the Student Peace Union, and I was a very early, shy, and new protester. But I, I believed in it, and this was a, a student organization, and so we were doing some picketing one day when I saw this, well, I should say I was, I, I got into a conversation with and joking around with one of the other protesters, which was my future husband, Peter Bryson. And Peter was getting a master's in pharmacology at the time, also at Georgetown. So we began to be friends. He played the guitar, he did, sang folk songs and so on. And he is a black man who, well, actually his mother's Jewish and his father's African-American, but a, a self-identified black man. And he won my heart. We fell in love and wanted to get married. And I, at this time, I was not living at home. I had just actually stopped living at home. I lived at home till I was 21 and went to college. At this point, I had finally gotten a, a, an apartment and a roommate, and I was working and going to school. But my parents uh, did not want this marriage, and they were extremely uh, upset that I was going to marry uh, a black man. And it's black and Jewish. Black and Jewish. Mm-hmm. So we did it anyway, and <laughs> he was going to be. Part, there was a program called the Student Health Organization. Um, that he was going to be a part of in San Francisco that summer. This was during the days when we had a poverty program, and students would go and work in impoverished areas and, 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 and serve. And so I wanted to go with him. Couldn't get married in Virginia because there was a law against it at that time, the anti-miscegenation laws that prohibited interracial marriages. We could have gotten married in D.C., but it required a waiting period. And I don't know why we didn't get married in Maryland. But we decided to go to New York to get married so I could meet his parents, for one thing. And uh, we got there, and I'd forgotten my birth certificate. So we couldn't get married then, either. Right when we came back to D.C., not knowing what we were going to do, the Supreme Court handed down the decision in Loving versus Virginia, which was 
June 12th, 1967. June 12th is still now known as Loving Day, and it's a day of celebration of all kinds of families. So when that decision came down that overruled all of these anti-miscegenation laws, including especially the one in Virginia, which was the one that was actually challenged, we got married in Virginia, in Arlington, Virginia, that Friday. So we think we probably were the first interracial couple, at least in Virginia, to get married after that decision. And then we went off to San Francisco. It was the summer of love, if you'll recall, 1967. We lived in Haight-Ashbury. Oh, wow. For a while, (laughs) and other neighborhoods, too. That's fascinating. So how'd you get to Denver? Peter was, um, became a medical student, so after we left San Francisco, we went back. He began medical school in Brooklyn. So we lived in Brooklyn, New York, had a couple of kids. I finished college. I taught school for a couple of years, taught African-American history in a middle school in, uh, in Brooklyn. And so then when Peter applied for internships, he only applied in Denver, San Diego. Uh, those are the two places we wanted to live. And I had been to, we had been to Denver. We had friends here. I actually had a sister who lived here. And so it felt really comfortable to us. So he ended up getting an internship at uh, University of Colorado. And were you working when you came to Denver? Yes, I was working at home with two little children. Yeah. My kids were one and three at the time. And what happened to your marriage? Well, um, my marriage lasted all together about, we were together about four and a half years. And then we decided to split up. But we decided to raise these kids together. So this was before joint custody was cool. And... uh, People were sure it was going to screw up the kids if they lived half the week with me and half the week with him. And it was complicated, and it did require a lot of negotiation and communication and extra socks and boots and gloves and things that we tended to lose. Uh, But that's what we did. We more or less raised these children together, although we lived 20 miles apart. And then what did you do in Denver? Yeah, I was very involved in the women's movement, and this happened almost immediately actually was happening when, as soon as we moved here. I was part of a, a daycare co-op. We called the Lucy Stone Daycare Co-op. Lucy Stone was a 19th century proponent of education for women. And so the, 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 the group had already begun before we got there, but it was an intentionally anti-sexist, anti-racist group of families. And we, we paid tuition and we hired teachers and we rotated homes. So one week it would be at my house and then we'd all get together Friday night and move to somebody else's house. Then it would be at their place. Um, and, um, and, and so there was, so that group immediately put me in touch with other um, young people raising children and, and I began to know more about the women's movement there. There was also an active anti-war movement here and I became very involved in that. It was called the Denver Peace Coalition. And it was made up of a lot of different kinds of anti-war um, groups. And so I got, I got very involved in that pretty intensely, in a lot of meetings and demonstrations and, and so on. And one of the things that came out of that was um, we need a women's newspaper. There was a growing consciousness about feminism. I was part of a consciousness-raising group. Which, have you ever heard of that? No. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay, so a CR group was the basic way in which, in my generation, women came to an awareness of their position in society, where women would get together and talk about things that we generally didn't talk about, the ways our husbands treated us, our difficulties in trying to get a career going, or going back to school, or 
loving another woman in some cases. So there was like a mix of kinds of uh, issues that women were were dealing with that had, and the consciousness raising was was uh, the way in which we relied on each other. So it was very grassroots. It actually came out of the way consciousness was being raised in left-wing political societies and other parts of the world. So what did that look like? We would have like a meeting and talk about it? We'd have or? a meeting once a week. Okay. It was very unstructured. We might have a book or a pamphlet. There wasn't a lot of literature out at that point. Or we might have heard about something. We didn't have the internet, so we might have news that we wanted to share. It became pretty apparent over time that there was a growing interest in, in, in the women's movement. There was a women's bookstore that was starting. There were, there were actually two. There were um, women who were starting to do music and performance. Uh, there was a growing lesbian feminist presence. So there was a need for communication and uh, analysis of what was what, of our roles as women and what we were doing. So as part of the anti-war movement, there were these offshoots, and one of them was the formation of Denver's feminist paper at that time, which we called Big Mama Rag. Where'd you get that name? It came out of a song by the band Rag Mama Rag. Oh. You know that tune? No. It's a great dance number. <laughs> Plus, we liked we liked the. It was kind of a funky thing. It was kind of a tribute to mothers. Mm. Rag is a you know is a kind of music, but it's also right. another term for a newspaper. Mm-hmm. It's also a term for a sanitary pad. Right. Being on the rag, right. and we were angry women. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we were sometimes on the rag. Well, what was in the paper? What kind of articles? Well, it's local news, primarily local news. Occasionally, something national if it was really important. But, but we had a we had a team of volunteer reporters and writers who would, you know, cover events, demonstrations, and meetings, and a lot of announcements of things that were coming up. And then we had, all of us had lots of opinions about whether boys should be allowed at women's meetings. You know, whether or not the this or that should happen. So we had generally a theme. Women in prison was one of our first themes. We had a lesbian feminist issue was maybe the second or third issue. We had um, women in poverty, the economics, women's culture, music, performance art, things like that. And you would distribute it throughout Denver? It cost 25 cents. And we had people that would, would hawk it, you know, at on corners or King Supers, we had a lot of subscriptions though, and we we had a lot of uh, colleges that subscribed mm-hmm. and libraries. They kind of became a backbone of of support. I love that. Yeah, it was very homegrown, but it was the old way where you actually had to type up these articles in columns and cut them out and paste them up with paste on paper and mm-hmm. take them to the printer yeah. where they photographed, the, made the plates and actually printed them with ink and then you went and picked them up. Were you doing this while you were going to law school? Yeah, mostly it was before I went to law school, but I, I did it a little, a little while, Okay. Um, but then I really had to get focused. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you decide to go to law school? Well, when I left Peter, I was um, broke, and I had no family to fall back on. But I did have a college degree, and so I had resources, and I knew how to type. And my mother always said, learn to type, you know, something to fall back on. So I fell back on it. Well, first I was on welfare for about six months. And then I had to get a job 
So I um, worked uh, as a secretary in the storefront law office in Five Points down at 26th and Welton. And I saw up close what lawyers did. And these were like, you know, storefront lawyers. These were people dealing with, you know, evictions and small criminal cases and family law and divorces and welfare issues and a lot of... And I saw what they did and I thought, I could do that. So I applied to law school. I remember the day I told my boss. I went in I said, I'm going to apply for law school. And he like threw down his glasses and he said, why is it every time I get a secretary she wants to become a lawyer? <laughs> I said, maybe it's the money. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's the money. He thought it was cute. So actually I did not get into law school the first time I applied. At that time there were only about mm, maybe 10% of the law school classes were female at that time. Not that there was a restriction on the number, that just not at least that we knew of, but um, I wasn't accepted the first year. But with the support of, uh, thank you, Mary Hoagland, um, other law students who they had a women's law caucus, it was so in support of other women that made such a difference. In yes. Life, you know, and when she said to me, that's fine. Apply again. Yeah. Take the test again. Do it again. And that persistence that has been, well, it's, it's been key in my whole life. So I did. I reapplied. I got in. I got some financial aid. So I was able to. I always had to work. Uh, and, and then, you know, the kids were with Peter half the time. So I did have time to, to myself as well as going to school and raising the kids and, and working. You also became involved in Denver's lesbian community. Right. Was this a, during that time also? or Right. It was during the general period that I'm talking about in the early 1970s. Okay. Right. There was a, um, a growing awareness of the lesbian community here because many of the leaders in the women's movement, some were lesbian, some were not, but, but there was more, there was an increasing acceptance of lesbian I, openness and identity. Do you think that happened before the start of acceptance for gay men? Do you think that was somehow more palatable during that time? I have no idea. I really I really don't know. We, for the most part, we, ha- we may have had individual friends who were gay men, mm-hmm. but we were very much just women. Yeah. We, we weren't, we, there was the gay community center, which yeah. was a mix, and there were organizations that were mixed, but the, the women I hung out with, for the most part, we didn't do political work with men. Okay. We weren't strict, strictly what they called separatists, but we were culturally, essentially, behaving that way in the terms of the work that we did. Right. So, um, so it was during that time I fell in love with a woman and began to you know, question, you know, my own sexual identity and what, and what all of that meant. But it was, it was also at that time a political statement. So uh, in that context, you'd have to see it in that context maybe to understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But it had to do with being identified, as, as opposed to being male identified. Mm-hmm. That is, wanting to, what, what, did, what did the men want? What did the men think? Right. What did the, you know, it was being woman identified. It was, it was really seeing the world and being willing to, to, to like embrace being female. Yes. I was thinking, you know, Aretha Franklin died the other day, and I think we've all been thinking so much of her. And one of the headlines I saw, I thought, it's so true. She just, you know, she embraced 
being a woman and she embraced being black and being a black woman and we loved her for that you know Mm -hmm. that was where the authenticity of her voice her music her her physical persona her whole passion was so apparent um I don't know why I'm going off on that, but what I'm trying to say is that this thing about being identified with other women as opposed to being identified with men and wanting to please men and wanting and so on. Mm-hmm. You're nodding, so I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes. <laughs> I saw, I don't know where I saw but um, I think it was in New York Magazine maybe, but even in the 50s, one of the op-ed pieces was a survey on should, should men spank their wives when they misbehave. <laughs> wow. And just, you know, the opinions that men held on things like that, you know, that it was a conversation they would have at work about, do you thank your wife? And what do you do when she doesn't have dinner ready? And, you know, just as women often talk about their children, that was the conversation that men were having about their wives. It's proper to their children. Yeah, you know, basically in the role of leadership over their wives, just. Yeah. Hmm. Jackie, tell us, you identified as a lesbian for about 15 years, I think you said. Yeah. And then you fell in love with a man, which (laughs) is interesting. And things have kind of shifted for you, where I'm curious if your priorities changed or you felt like there wasn't as much of a need for that women-identified kind of philosophy or stance because women were getting more rights and more privileges. But how do you feel about that now? Do you feel like a feminist still? Oh, yeah. I'm sure you are, but do you feel like you still need to do the work <laughs> of a feminist now? I mean, you've kind of moved on to some racism work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's not as pressing? Or what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Well, my, uh, my uh, personal relationships, I don't think are driven by my politics. I think the fact that there was a lesbian feminist community for me to be part of was a support to discovering that I could love women as well as men. Hmm. So in that sense, I think they were related. But, you know, there were several women, and one in particular I lived with with for a number of years. We had a family, in the sense my children, but, you know, she was very involved in supporting them. We were law partners. Those relationships were really important to me. And the idea of identifying as a lesbian to me is always, it's like I would say I still have that consciousness. It's just, I'm not a very good lesbian anymore. (laughs) (laughs) What's that mean? (laughs) It means that I've continued to fall in love with men over the, you know, for the last 30 years. You're a lapsed lesbian. I'm a lapsed lesbian. But you could put me in the box as a bisexual. I could check that box. You know, as I was saying earlier, that's not much of an identity in my mind. it, It is a description that fits me, and I'll accept it. How about just politically? Do you feel like you're still working towards feminist goals? Or do you feel like it's not as pressing right now and you have to put your energy towards other things? No, I think the feminist goals um, are are still very, very important. Um, You know, during my legal career, my primary interest was in domestic violence reform. We haven't talked about that yet, but that's been kind of a consistency throughout my legal career. How'd you find so much passion for domestic violence? My partner at the time worked at a battered women's shelter in Jefferson County called Women in Crisis. It's still around. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they would go and do a clinic and woman after woman would say, I called the police. They told the guy to take a walk around the block. 
they didn't do anything to protect me. Yeah. And I ke- and she kept hearing these stories, and um, so she and two other women, and myself, we got together and started talking about what can we do about that. And this would have been in the early 1980s. Were you a lawyer at that point or a judge? Yeah, I was a lawyer. Okay. We learned that legal aid in New York and in Oakland and maybe some other places had filed some suits against the cities and the police departments for failing to protect victims of domestic violence. And they were basing it on a a constitutional equal protection argument, which we had our doubts about its success at that point. But we formed a lawyer's committee. We formed a, a women's legal rights committee, we called ourselves. We found some excuse me, some volunteer lawyers through legal aid, including several men, and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. We began planning some litigation to sue the city of Denver, actually. We were going to start there. And wow. we met with city officials. We, told, we, went, we, we talked to them about what our concerns were. And we really got the brush off and the run around and, oh, isn't it awful? Men beat women. They've always done that. There's really not much we can do about it. Well, you can enforce restraining orders for one thing. Yeah, but then, you know, what happens is they just get a slap on the wrist. Well, well, they could be required to go to treatment. Well, there aren't any treatment programs. Well, what ended up happening was we never did file the suit because at that time there was a mayoral election, and it was the one that was won eventually by Federico Pena. So this was been about 83. And we sent a questionnaire to the candidates. There were about six or seven people running for mayor that year. And we told them who we were, what we wanted, and if you're elected, would you work with us? And all but one said yes. So after Pena was elected, we waited until he had his appointments in place, his manager of safety, his police chief, and so on city attorney and and then we came knocking and we said okay we we'd like to work with you now and to his credit he invited us in he assigned someone in his office to see to it that policy was That's developed he de- we developed a, a team of people from the inside that included all of the players so we had the district attorneys we had the city attorney we had the chief of police we had the division chief we had the chief of patrols we had the people from the domestic violence community amend abusive men exploring new directions which is a counseling program for um, batterers and um, as well as women from the shelters and and project safeguard which was the organization that i'd helped to start which was an advocacy organization that was the group that we were operating under under their auspices that was in december that meeting by the next october we had a plan in place and a new policy went into effect in Denver, which required the police to arrest on probable cause in domestic violence cases. And that included restraining order violations as well as criminal violations for assault or disturbing the peace or whatever it was. Eventually, 10 years later, those policies became state law in 1984. And that was a game changer. I mean, that was a major game changer Mm -hmm. in terms of hopefully reducing um, the amount of domestic violence, but at least providing some resources for for the protection of women and children. And I say women because that statistics show 95% of the time that's the case. Right. So in terms of the law, I could go on and on, so let me stop there. <laughs> Are you still doing work with domestic violence? Um, no, I was on the board of Project Safeguard. I did a short stint, and then when I was a when I was a county judge, 
um, I, I was the first judge in the Denver Protection Order Court. Mm-hmm. That was a specialized court set up specifically for hearing restraining orders of all kinds. What made you decide to be a judge? I'm always fascinated by that transition, especially for people who do a lot of activism work like you do, because it seems like it would be almost confining in some ways. Did it you was mind? in yeah. some ways. It was in some ways. Was that difficult? You know, it wasn't a big decision like that. It was more that I, at that point, had a law office downtown. I had one lawyer working with me and a paralegal and a secretary, and I was having trouble making ends meet uh, financially, mm-hmm. and I was also just burning out. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I knew that I was shutting down the office, and I began facing that. And the lawyer that was working with me left, and the legal left and pretty much it was just me and a secretary and pretty soon I said you know what we're closing the doors by by June 1st regardless and I don't know just what I'll do next. How old were you at that point? At that point I was in my early 40s. Okay. Right around that time there was a vacancy on the court and I applied and I was not chosen so I reapplied. The next time there was a vacancy and I um, the first time my name had gone up to the mayor, but the mayor hadn't appointed me. And the second time my name went up and I was appointed. It, I didn't exactly fall into it. It was intentional. Yeah. But to me, it made a lot of sense because I had been learning so much about the importance of county courts. I mean, yeah. our busy urban courts is where most of the justice and injustice happens. Right. You know, we hear about the big felony cases, but am I right? Yeah. Officer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, you know, the day in, day out. Uh, And I had learned so much about that in doing the domestic violence advocacy work um, that even though my primary practice had been civil, I was able to kind of make that transition pretty pretty easily. Hmm. And then you had a big career change after being a judge. You decided to be a writer. Actually, there was something else I did in the meantime. Tell us. I was the... um, director of the clinical program at DU Law School. So I was on the faculty of DU Law School for about five years. And that's the program where law students actually represent clients mm-hmm. in court, yeah. as well as it was an oversight of the internship program where law students go out in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was a pretty fascinating experience. Before I did that, you're right though, there were a few years in there. I, I, I left the court and in 94, and between 94 and 97, I did a master's degree at CU in English creative writing. Because I had an interest in writing all along, and during my years on the bench, it was, uh, it's a kind of reflective job. Mm -hmm. And it was really an opportunity for me to to do some writing, so I had been going to writers' conferences and so on, and I'd done some readings in the community, but so I got a master's degree, essentially, in creative writing. Um, but um, by nine, and I worked part-time as a judge during those three years while I did that program. But then I needed a real job so again, so I, so I went on the faculty at DU. One of the programs we did there was the Battered Women's Clemency Project, which was uh, where we teamed up law students with a psychologist, a lawyer in the community, and a faculty member to represent women who were in prison for killing their abusers. Oh, oh, that's fascinating. And we presented clemency petitions to uh, Governor Romer to try to see if we could correct 
some of the sentencing problems that did you I have had. any success yeah, with how that? We was had that? some we had some success. Uh, one case in particular came out of southern Colorado and it was a it was a woman who she and her son both had gone to prison for her sure her having directed her son to to kill the father and the son having actually pulled the trigger. This was a man who had um, abused a family of about seven or eight children over a period of many years. Social services knew all about them. Uh, I won't even go into the nature of the abuse because it was horrific. So, it, but it, indeed, it was murder. <clears throat> and but the sentences were were longer probably than they should have been. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the son um, and and mother were both released within, I think, she was released pretty quickly, and he was released, I think, about a year later. Hmm. Um, so we represented both of them in that case. Um, there was a, a sentence of 40 years that was reduced in, one, in another case. But, you know, the hardest part was we didn't get relief for some of our clients, and that was a real educational experience for the students to learn how you have to deliver bad news sometimes. Yeah. yeah. After you got out of law and you started to build your creative writing skills, yeah, you started traveling to Pakistan. How did that happen? Tell us more about that. Okay. In 2002, I was teaching a course at Metro called Women Writing About the World After September the 11th. And it was a, a writing workshop. And we were, there weren't many books out at that time. Um, on, on the subject. So we were reading articles I would clip uh, that mainly were either stories or op-eds or poetry. And we would read them in class and, um, and then we would write those. We would write them and people had to, the, the students had to write a memoir, like their own experience of 9-11 of, of and how they experienced that. Uh, and they had to write, uh, they could use various forms. So we we, we were playing around with all of that. Well, during that same time, well, one of the, I should say, one of the things that became apparent in reading material written by women, because I was presenting only material written by women, because it was women writing about the world. Women were writing about the experiences of women in the Muslim world. And so that was kind of incre any increased consciousness uh, in the yeah. country in general that w was happening, as well as just the focus on, on, on the that part of the world. So during that time, I had a friend who called me and she said, I'm ha I have a Pakistani friend who is going to come to my house for dinner tonight. I'm having a few people over and she's going to show a video about honor crimes. Well, we had re read about honor crimes in, in, in the class and I had a particular interest in it because honor crimes, um, if you don't know, are crimes committed by one family member against another for having violated some kind of social mores. Generally, it's a sexual one, but not always. Mm -hmm. And as I was telling you earlier, I didn't tell you the whole story, but after I married, um, my family, my parents, uh, essentially committed an emotional honor crime, as far as I'm concerned, against me. They would have nothing to do with me. Um, and that was true for about 15 years, so they didn't know my children growing up. We, we didn't do Christmas. We didn't do we didn't do any of those things that families did. My sisters were were more supportive, but my parents were, um, you know, white silent is what they were, and I loved them dearly. So it was very it was a very very 
big issue in my life, feeling abandoned by them. What anyway, changed that? What changed that with me was my father got cancer. Okay. And I went into therapy. And I pushed myself back in the family, and they were really glad I came back. You know, there's nothing about the proximity, nothing stronger than the closeness of death to make it clear what matters and what doesn't. Yeah, I agree. And so... By that time, my kids were teenagers, and there was a whole, it was a whole different world. And, and so I was, able to, I was actually able to come to terms with them. I was great, really grateful for that opportunity to come to terms with them in a loving way before they died. But because I had had that experience of feeling like I had been, in a sense, abused by my own family, I was, I was particularly interested in honor crimes and how that happened. So I went to this dinner party, mm-hmm. and I met at this this woman who showed the film and I, I call her Aisha I don't reveal her true name because she's still in Pakistan and she's still doing this kind of work and um, she told she was a teacher and she told about her experiences with helping women escape from from um, abusive situations or sort of women who are destined to die in honor crimes you know where they'd been threatened and so on and we were in the kitchen washing dishes and I was telling her about my work in domestic violence and she was telling me about her work in Pakistan and both of us were crying (laughs) as we were washing these dishes and kind of remembering these clients that we'd had and students she'd had and cases I'd seen in court and uh, I don't know just all and I said to her can I write your story you know and she turned to me and she said yes so what happened was she that spring we spent every other week we would meet and she would give me materials to read and I would immerse myself in everything I could mm-hmm. about Pakistan and um, and then I would write and I would bring it to her and she would correct it or I'd ask more questions and anyway over time this manuscript built and by the time the summer came around I, I knew that I had a story to tell and I knew that uh, I also wanted to fictionalize it there were aspects of the story I wanted to change, both to protect her as also to... I just wanted to add elements that didn't exist in reality. Right. So the following December and January, I went to Pakistan and traveled with her and her family and other... Yeah, around... And I did what I call a human rights tour of Pakistan. I want, There were things I wanted to see. I wanted to see um, women's shelters and the resource centers and the, and the, 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 the schools... And um, I wanted to see the union organizers and the hospitals and the neighborhoods. I wanted to go to the different parts of the country to experience the various ethnic cultures that were there, the ones that I could. And um, so I had a really amazing um, experience in Pakistan. And I went as part of the group. So I wore the shalwar kameez, and which is the, you know, the loose. Uh, cotton pajama pants you see men mm-hmm. and women from South Asia often wear in the long the long blouse with the cut at the sides mm-hmm. and often a dupatta which is a, a shawl or a headscarf so I I dyed my hair because um, my hair is naturally light and I dyed my hair dark and and c- tried to blend in that was sort of the plan and I would not speak when there was anyone around that wasn't family or close friends and I just sort of stayed in the back of the van and when we were driving or, or whatever. So I got my way through Pakistan like that, and, and it was an amazing experience, and it gave me what I needed to really make this book real. So when I came back, I, 
I worked on it over and over the years for a long time, revise, 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 and eventually it was published by Press 53 in, in, in 2010. After that, I did a, I did a tour um, and uh, went in a lot of different places in the country. I've been all over the state, uh, D.C., St. Louis, Chicago, New York, um, in the South, and, um, and, I would, and, read, and read and sold the book and um, also raised money. Um, I gave half of my, of my proceeds for this project, and then other people just wrote checks, and I raised $25,000. It's incredible. To, to build a shelter there in Pakistan for women and children escaping abuse, and it exists now. Wow. Yeah. So how many people, I don't want to put you on the spot with yeah. the number, but how many people does it service typically? You know, I think there's room for like 15 to 20. Okay. And a lot of women don't have a place to go, so in some cases, I learned recently, it's become almost a permanent shelter for some women and children wow. if, they, if they can't find a place for them to go where they'd be safe but it's disguised in the community as something else. So it's not like we, well, it's true here too. Right, yeah, no, that's very true. <clears throat> Although every cab driver knows exactly where the shelters are. Um, but it is, yeah, it's disguised as something else. And you also write poetry. I do, I'm currently the poetry editor, as you said, of the Colorado Independent, and I've won a couple of poetry awards, and I was Ziggy's Poet of the Year a few years ago at Ziggy's wow. Blues Club. Wow. Oh, <laughs> nice. Could you read us a poem? Yeah. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> There's nothing like author read. I'll read the title poem, What Remains, is the name of my book of poems. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately as I age, because I'm I'm 72, I'll be 73 next month, so I'm entering old age. And yet, what remains? What remains of the past, you know, for any of us? So that's what this is about. They are not ghosts that hover. They are whatever pulses through the ethers. The boy and the girl drew cherry coke through drugstore straws. The syrup was dark, the glass shapely. The straws were paper. And still, they are drawn to each other sucking the practically nothing that remains. This morning, he sends an email about his family's school in Africa with photos of his wife, regal in her tie-dyed headdress, and he, both handsome and boyish, still wearing a misfit jacket from an earlier decade. And there's a one-line email from another one, the teenage boy who petted with me in the back seat, all lips and hands. In those sweet days, he would leave for me to find later a morning note in our own abbreviated language folded inside our book in the high school library shelf marked fiction. Now he complains about the swarm of grandchildren he must drive around to all their events. In the subject line, he writes that he has a random cue. How can he find out what happened to a nun from grade school he's been thinking about recently? He wonders what we all wonder. What remains? My calico cat finally died in November and I raked her animal ashes into the soil with the remaining vegetables of the season. So when my two-year-old granddaughter asked me, but where is she now? Where is her body? I could place in her palm a flake of the cat she used to know. She is nowhere now, the child said to the nothing in her hand. Then she looked around the garden and up at the sky. 
years ago, holding hands with my first granddaughter when she was about the same age as this one is now. We walked into a suburban park, surrounded by pastel-painted houses with pitched roofs, big green soccer field, slides and swings. The park was empty except for the two of us and a dozen geese pulling blades of grass one by one up out of the ground. It was so quiet. She asked, are we in a story? She wanted to know if it is all made up. I feel a kind of tenderness for everyone and everything when I step through the garden gate or open my email in the morning at my desk. Which will it be this time? The Coca-Cola boy or the headmaster? The backseat boy or the grandfather, half wanting to be left alone? What remains of them? And who opens the email anyway? The Catholic girl in the navy blue uniform, white blouse unbuttoned? Or the one sitting on her front step, knowing his bike is coming down the sidewalk, hearing the squeak of the brakes, the slide of the skid? Or is it the grandmother, making it all up, petting the cat? That is incredibly beautiful. I'll admit I'm more emotional today than other days. <laughs> You're a little bit You are. I am. I would just like to know one more thing, and we ask all of our guests this. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, that's a great question, and it was easy to answer. For me, it's um, let it go. What more can you say than that? Jackie St. Joan, thank you so much for joining us. We could have thousands more questions, and we probably will, so thank you. This is Women in a Day podcast with Jenny Hauser, Portia Hensley. To see more information about Jackie, some photos of her, and maybe read some things that didn't quite make it into the interview, as always, go to our website, womeninadaypodcast.com. Or her website, which is... MySistersMadeOfLight.com or JacquelineStJoan.com. Yes. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time. And thank you to Tony Tarbox, our editor, and Hillary Blair for lending her voice on our intro.